Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. This morning's topic is Step 12. Today is Sunday, May 19, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. The whole point of joining Overeaters Anonymous and moving all through the steps is to take us to Step 12. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Here to speak to us this morning on the meaning of Step 12 is Lori. Lori, a recovered compulsive overeater from Canada, spends much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying this message of recovery. It is now my pleasure to welcome Lori to the line. Okay, thank you, uh, Leah. I'm Lori. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, I hope I can be heard, and Leah, tell me if I can't be, uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, speaking, I'm using headphones because I'll be speaking for some time. Um, I really appreciate being invited to do this uh, and uh, even getting up at uh, 6.30 in the morning my time in order to uh, be ready for 7.30 in the morning uh, uh, my time. I appreciate doing this because I take Step 12 very seriously. And I think that by the time we finish today, I hope that by the time we finish today, um, people will, will think, people who are hearing will clearly whether or not they really take this as seriously as I do and as many, many other people in this program do. For me, this is a life or death program. It is as serious and as important as any other 12-step group, and it is one that uh, we should be carrying the message for a lot more actively than we do. I, one of the things I hope to be able to discuss is how really, uh, I mean, objectively, we are doing a bad job in Overeaters Anonymous of carrying the message because we should be a million strong and not 60,000 or 70,000 strong around the world. Um, let me start off by saying where we come from. Uh, it, it is only by understanding where we come from that we have an understanding of what it is that we have to do. I take this uh, program seriously because I know that without it, without all the steps, and particularly without step 12, I would be at least 100, if not 150 pounds heavier than I am. I would have diabetes. I know that. That would be absolutely for certain uh, because of, 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 of my genetics and my family. I would probably have a stroke, uh, have had a stroke, or be on my way to having one. Um, I would be suffering and I would be in my life about to be suffering because I'm 60, uh, 60, how old am I? Just forgot, 67 now. Uh, uh, and by the time I reach 75, I would start that at least. I have a lot of genetics going for me also, my family. I have long, long lives on, on one side and diabetes on three sides of my grandparents. Um, I. I would be suffering, I would be beginning to be suffering from the kind of debilitation uh, that occurs with compulsive eating, probably by 70. Uh, the kind of inability to walk around, to move around, the knees going, the hips going, 
the lethargy, the uh, need to be dependent upon other people in, in order to uh, just live a, an ordinary life. Uh, the more sedentary I got, the worse it would get. Uh, the worse I would feel, the, the more it would be difficult to get out of bed or to move, uh, and the, the, the more it would just feel as if I had to become more and more dependent upon other people. Uh, as I got older, I would suffer the strokes, the, the debilitating uh, things that make it more and more difficult for me even to think or to enjoy life or to communicate. Um, I know these things would be true about me. Uh, they, they were true for my mother. Uh, they were true for my grandmother. Uh, and they would be true for me. So why do I take this program seriously? Obviously, weight is a problem. Obviously, overeating is a problem. I take it seriously because I accept that the big books, uh, it took me six or seven years to accept it, but I accept the big book's uh, description of my problem. And I, I do have to talk about it, even though that's a step one issue. Uh, my problem is not only that I, it's not that I just can't stop eating. It is, it is a twofold problem. It is one that when I start to eat certain foods or start to indulge in certain eating behaviors, I have found myself in the past unable to stop until it's done, until there's nothing left. I have found that invariably occurs with certain kinds of foods and certain kinds of eating behaviors. That's a step one issue as to what those, what those foods are, what those eating behaviors are, and how one ad adopts a plan of eating that eliminates them. But the most important thing to know for, about me is that once I start, I can't stop those things, and that that's not my real problem. My real problem has always been, and it, it took me so long in this program to understand it because we don't do a good job of explaining it. My real problem has always been that I can't stop from starting again, that all my attempts to leave and not uh, to leave those foods and leave those eating behaviors and to abstain from them, all my diet years, uh, which were many, uh, always resulted in my saying to myself or being persuaded by the diets I was on that once I lost my weight, I could go back and eat all those other foods that I had eliminated in moderation. And sometimes it wasn't that I was persuaded by the diets. It was I was persuaded by all kinds of things that were going on in my life or by simple excuses. The, the, the things that are going on in my life, emotional, difficult, uh, happy, sad, uh, depressing, uh, suicidal, uh, overwhelmingly joyous. Uh, they were all accompanied by, well, I can have some now. Uh, it's good for me or it's bad for me, uh, depending on how I felt about myself. Um, I deserve it. I want to celebrate. Or even the stupid reasons like it's whole grain. Uh, the, you know, the, the butter is free-range butter. The cows were allowed to walk around in the pasture. Or, or the Dalai Lama blessed this 10% uh, fat yogurt um, made from yak's milk. Uh, whatever it is, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never have this again. They made it especially for me. Whatever those reasons, those stupid or those deeply emotional reasons, and, and the big book calls them mental obsessions because they're not just emotional. They can be just mental little clicks in the mind. My mind always found a way to persuade me to go back to eating those foods that I knew deep in my heart I shouldn't be eating because once I started eating them, I couldn't stop. Well, this dilemma, this complete vicious circle, 
is I can't stop once I've started, and I can't stop from starting. Therefore, I'm in a vicious circle. This explains all my yo-yo dieting. Uh, it explains <clears throat> all the times I've lost the weight and then gained it even more back. Once I accepted that in, in Overeaters Anonymous, and it took me six or seven years in this program before I had the opportunity to study the big book uh, in a way that allowed me to accept that simple notion that's found in the doctor's opinion, uh, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. The simple and obvious notion that once it, once it was pounded into me, I finally accepted it, meant that I was able to abstain from the foods, know which foods I had to abstain from, know which eating behaviors I had to abstain from. And then I had to work the steps with such desperation that I was able to maintain my abstinence while I worked the steps. And then I worked the steps, and by the time step nine came around, the promises that are contained in the big book, that I would be completely neutral about those foods, that I would be able to be around them and watch other people enjoy them and be happy for them and not want any of it and not be angry at them when they got full and didn't want to eat anymore. Um, once that occurred, it was an amazing experience. And uh, I, I, um, I'm just trying to say, I hope, I don't know if this makes it louder or not. Um, I, I was able to achieve that through working the steps because what the steps do is change the mind. They don't change the body. They allow the mind to accept the body and allow the mind to say, oh, I'm like this, therefore I can't eat my killer foods, my binge foods, my trigger foods. I can't indulge in my uh, killer eating behaviors. Now, that's step nine, and the promise of the big book is that when, we're, when if we abstain from compulsive eating, from compulsively eating the foods that we know we can't eat, if we abstain from compulsively indulging in the uh, eating behaviors that we know we can't indulge in because they all say more to us, and if we work the steps to the best of our abilities, by the time we reach step nine, we will be neutralized. Uh, the big book describes it uh, on the page... Um, Page 84, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor and our killer foods. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor, towards our killer foods, has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We, ve we feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. I have been fortunate enough, but it's not been fortunate. It's been hard work to have had that experience for over 20 years now. To be around the foods that used to beckon to me and not to want them is a miracle for me. To have ice cream go bad in my freezer is a miracle to me. To watch my wife eat things that she just is ecstatic about, desserts that she's ecstatic about, and not to want to eat them is a miracle for me. Now, the big book has a warning on page 85. It says that, that is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And there are three steps that keep us in fit spiritual condition. One is step 10, where we continue to take the inventory that we did when we did steps four through nine. 
And when we do that inventory, we continue to clear away the past that always creeps up on us as time goes on. There's a past, you know, between the time I lasted my step nine and, and today. And I have to keep cleaning that up and keep making certain that I am straight with the world. Step 11, prayer and meditation, continuing to call upon the higher power of our choice. And for those of you who are interested I, uh, or may, may know of me, I, I have absolutely no personal God whatsoever. Uh, I've never had a problem. Uh, I don't even believe in the spirit of the universe or a creator of any kind. My God is an abstract concept of truth, love, justice, and beauty. I have no problem with that. It's, it's fine with me. And, um, and, uh, but anyway, I keep praying and meditating uh, in order to be closer and closer to, those, to truth, love, justice, and beauty. And that keeps me clean. But the most significant step is the step that keeps us alive. And that's step 12. And if we don't take that step as seriously as we take all the other steps, we're doomed to uh, relapse. So I do it. I do step 12 as much as I can. So step 12 promises us, as it's written on the wall, as we read it out loud in our meetings, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We big book thumpers always uh, emphasize the the result of these steps because it's not a result of the steps. It is the result of these steps. These steps give us a spiritual awakening. And a spiritual awakening is precisely what I have defined. It is beyond that for many people. It's a, it's a oneness with God. It's a, it's a sense of, uh, of a wholeness. Uh, but at the very least, uh, a spiritual awakening is defined in the appendix, uh, appendix two to the big book as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism, recovery from compulsive eating. And that um, uh, personality change is a complete makeover where we don't think of ourselves, we're not into ourselves, we don't have that mental obsession that sends us back to the food and gives us permission. It is a feeling that we have a different purpose of life, a different uh, end in life. And that life is defined with a job description that we get on page uh, um, 102 of the big book. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. Um, the big book describes, uh, as it introduces the concepts of step three, uh, describes the nature of our relationship with our employer. On page 63, it says, when we sincerely took such a position, this is steps four through 12, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed. If we kept close to him, that's steps four through 11, and performed his work well. That's step 12. Established in such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Now, that's written in a relatively Christian way, and I'm not a Christian in any way, shape, or form. But I, I accept that. If I look at new employers being my abstract concepts of truth, love, justice, and beauty, that's fine with me. They do provide what I need, those concepts, if I keep close to them and perform their work. Because if I live my life according to those concepts, I will live a better life. I will live a life uh, of clarity. I will live a life of abstinence. So... Having had a spiritual awakening, the result of these steps, 
promise of these steps is that I am absolutely neutral about food. And so long as I keep working the steps, I will continue to be neutral. That brings us to step 12. We tried to carry this message to compulsive eaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I'll deal very briefly with the practice these principles in all our affairs. Uh, uh, it is an important thing. It, is, it means that according to what we believe in, uh, the image the big book gives us, by the way, is that we always have our deepest beliefs inside of us. We can't justify them. They just are our deepest beliefs, whether they're a belief in a personal God, as so many people in OA have, or whether they're a belief in just fundamental concepts of uh, decency, human, <coughs> uh, good human nature, uh, truth or love or justice, as I have. Uh, just a belief that they, are, that they are important and more important than I am. <coughs> Sorry. Um, whatever it is, our problem is simply that we have cut ourselves off from that. Uh, and it is the job of the steps to clear that passageway. Once that passageway is cleared, the job steps 10, 11, and 12 are to keep the passageway open. Uh, the great AA speaker, Clancy, uh, who uh, refers to alcoholics as pukes, uh, says in, in one of his uh, talks, and I'm sure in many of his talks, the reason we spend so much time taking care of the puke outside of us is that it's so much better than spending any time with the puke inside of us. And I tend to, un I really understand that. When my mind, you know, what, what do we hear? Uh, my mind is a, is, a, is, a, is a geographical area where I should never go alone. Um, it, is a, it is a hellhole. It is a place where I can get so involved in myself that I don't really think of reality. I don't really think of other people. And I, I find myself tending uh, that way at times. Uh, I do have that sort of inner, inner voice that's always thinking about, thinking about, thinking about. And it sometimes is very hard to keep track of what's going on in my daily life. Uh, carrying these principles out in all our affairs is really always being truthful and loving and just and, and fair and decent and kind. Um, this is a program that, that uh, as they tell us in how it works, demands rigorous honesty. And carrying these principles out in all of our affairs means not simply that we carry the message to other people who still suffer from our particular uh, illness, but it means carrying the message of love and trust and beauty and, and, and whatever it is that we believe in uh, or that we, our scriptures tell us we should believe in, uh, carrying that message uh, uh, throughout our lives. Um, and, and, and we should be a beacon of love, uh, a beacon of tolerance, a beacon of patience, um, uh, because those are the traits that uh, our higher powers uh, lead us toward. What I want to speak about most of all, however, is carrying the message within our own uh, fellowship and among the people who are the uh, people who suffer our illness. Um, every 12-step program has Two, only two differences. Uh, one is what we're powerless over in step one, and the other is to whom we carry the message in step 12. I've had many friends who are members of other 12-step programs who also have joined OA. The ones who prosper are the ones who go to both programs. The ones who have not prospered, though, and, and I have two uh, especially who have died as a result of, of, uh, uh, of, of this, are those who have not, um, who have thought that their answer lay in one of the programs, 
and not any of the others. And I understand the concept because each program says that we will achieve this kind of neutrality and this kind of um, spiritual awakening. But what they, what one program will leave out is carrying the message to the others, the people who suffer the other illness. I have to carry my message to compulsive eaters who still suffer. Alcoholics have to carry their message to alcoholics. If you're both an alcoholic and a compulsive eater, you have to carry the message to both, um, at least if you're a member, if you deserve to be or qualify to be in the uh, 12-step program of both, if you're both a compulsive eater uh, and a, uh, an alcoholic. Well, why do we carry the message? The big book sets out all kinds of reasons. Uh, it provides all kinds of promises. Uh, uh, Dr. Bob, in his uh, in Dr. Bob's Nightmare, the first story after the text of the big book, gives four reasons. As one, sense of duty. Two, it is pleasure. Three, because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. And, you know, Dr. Bob had one man to thank. That was Bill Wilson, Bill W. And uh, I... Bill Wilson had other people to thank. I have so many people to thank. I have so many people who carried me through my uh, six or seven years of relapse and so many people who uh, were helped by other people who were helped by other people who were helped by other people. We have more and more uh, debts to pay to all kinds of people. And four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against the possible slip. And these are really significant reasons. A sense of duty? Yeah, there are people out there who still suffer. And if I don't help carry the message to them, then I am harming them because the message is there and I can help them. It is a pleasure. It is a pleasure to, to see someone prosper. I, I mean, the, 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 um, uh, the promises in, in, in uh, Chapter uh, 7, Working with Others, life will take on a new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. These are promises that have come true for me. Uh, they're promises that come true for everyone who carries the message uh, in, in Overeaters Anonymous. And they are incredible promises. They give you a feeling of, of usefulness. Uh, every part of your life that hitherto might have felt useless is now becomes meaningful. Whatever bad things have happened to you now become ways in which you can help your help others experience. Um, remember the promises uh, on on page um, uh, 83, 84. Uh, the one promise is we will, uh, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And on page 124, the big book talks about how. I just want to get the exact quote. I remember it almost exactly, but not exactly enough. It says, Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And it, it, goes, it says a little earlier than that on page 24, The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. Uh, I have so many friends who have suffered so much more than I have um, before they join the program and, and sometimes afterwards as a result of things that go on in their lives. And what they have been able to do, uh, and I can do this only in a much smaller measure because of, uh, I haven't suffered the way they have, what they're able to say is, to, is, you know, I suffered this and this and this. I was abused as a child. I was a victim of rape. I was 
you know, I have suffered these illnesses, uh, whatever, whatever they have suffered from. I was beaten um, for many years, and they were able to say, and I don't eat over it now. As a matter of fact, it provides me the courage to go on with my life. And I, and, and I don't eat over it, and I don't feel sorry for myself. As a matter of fact, I feel good about myself. To be able to transform the horrible experiences of your life into meaningful experiences that you can show to someone else, give you uh, joy and happiness because you're different from what you used to be, uh, is an amazing experience. And, and those of my friends who have suffered tremendously are, are able to use their past uh, to such, with such power. And, 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 and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm so uh, uh, humbled to, to know them and to watch how, they, how they're able to carry their message. Um, but it is a pleasure to help those people, to help people who still suffer. Uh, and, and, and that pleasure is, is something that we must not forget and we must not miss. The big book says we shouldn't. Paying the debt I've talked about and a little bit more insurance for myself against a possible slip. This is really key, and it, it's uh, illustrated vividly in the, in the uh, famous history of Bill Wilson, who was uh, six months sober, who tried to sober up other alcoholics for six months and couldn't, and uh, who was told and, and said to his wife, I haven't been able to keep one drunk sober. And his wife said, no, you have. You're sober. And he began to realize at that moment that his the reason he was sober was that he kept trying to help other people regardless of whether they stopped drinking. And that was the impetus for understa an understanding of Step 12. Uh, the big book says in the chapter, Working with Others, Chapter 7, make certain that he understands that he may be helping you more than you are helping him when you carry the message. And that is very key because the... The, uh, it is important for him to realize, page 94, it's important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. So for me, this is a life and death program, and for me, carrying the message is life or death. If I don't carry the message, none of the other steps is going to help me continue to recover and maintain my fit spiritual condition. I must carry the message. And if I don't carry it to the best of my ability, I'm not doing a good job of accounting for my time. Uh, in, in, his, uh, in his last major talk, Dr. Bob says this. Uh, this was in 1948 in Detroit. And it's, it's, in a, it's found in a pamphlet available from Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, in my mind, the spirit of service was of prime importance, but I found that it had to be backed up with some knowledge in our subject. I used to go to the hospital and stand there and talk. I talked many a time to a chap in the bed for five or six hours. I don't know how he ever stood me for five or six hours, but he did. We must have hidden his clothes. Anyway, it came to me that I probably didn't know too much about what I was saying. We are stewards, and a steward means a guardian or a trustee of what we have, and that includes our time. I was not giving a good account of my stewardship of time when it took me six hours to say something to this man that I could have said in an hour if I had known what I was talking about. I certainly was not a very efficient individual. So it is incumbent upon us, I think, I take that as, as, major, as a major uh, point, 
that we really have to know what we're talking about when we carry the message to someone who's still suffering. The big book chapter, Working with Others, is all about how to carry the message. And it, is, it, it describes a method of carrying the message that is very different from what the first from the, what the founders and the first uh, number of members of AA did. Uh, they talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, just as Dr. Bob says, five or six hours at a time. It was depression. They had time to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk because most of them didn't have any jobs. They drunk themselves out of jobs. And they, they, they just talked. Um, but the chapter, Working with Others, describes a very different way of carrying the message. I want to go into that. I'm not going to go into that in huge detail, but I want to talk about it a bit. Um, it, the the me- method of carrying it stems from Bill's experience after six months of not being able to get one alcoholic to sober up, other than to keep himself alcoholic. His method of carrying this, uh, the message at that time was to talk to people about how wonderful he felt now, about how he had found God in a big flash of light in a room at the town's hospital in New York, about how he no longer wanted to drink now, about how life was wonderful for him now. And people didn't listen to him. He went to see his mentor, Dr. William Silkworth, who, had, who was the person who, who developed the, the picture of the addict. It was a revolutionary picture in 1933 when he first proposed, 32 when he first uh, put it forward, this concept of the, the, that the body can't stop once it starts and that the mind can't stop from starting again, the, what Silkworth called the, Dr. Silkworth called the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Um, and Dr. Silkworth said to him after about six months, he says, why don't you pour the grim medical facts into these people before you do anything else? Um, have you forgotten what William James, William James uh, wrote a great book called Varieties of Religious Experience? Have you forgotten what William James said about ego deflation at depth? Give them the medical business and give it to them hard. The medical business is the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Skip that account of your hot flash. That's his. <laughs> has a different meaning in OA uh, than it does than it did then. But the hot flash is that white light, the, the the feeling of God that he had at the town's hospital. Recite your symptoms extensively so as to get an identification at depth. When you do this, your prospects may become willing to adopt the simple moral precepts, the steps you've been trying to teach. Uh, I take this, by the way, from uh, another AA pamphlet called Three Talks to Medical Societies by Bill W. And, and Bill also describes in that same pamphlet, he says, in fact, we aim to produce a crisis to cause him to hit bottom, as AA say. Of course, and by the way, I, I heard it once said, you hit bottom when you stop digging. And there's no reason for people to dig all the way down to, to China, or you know, as we used to say, uh, in order for them to hit, hit bottom. We have to find a way to encourage people to stop digging. Anyway, to cause them to hit bottom is AA state. Go on with, I'm going on with Bill W. Of course, you will understand that this is all done by indirection. We never pronounce sentences, nor do we tell any alcoholic what he must do. We don't even tell him he's an alcoholic. Relating the seriousness of our own cases, we leave him to draw his own conclusions. 
But once he's accepted the fact that he is an alcoholic and the further fact that he's powerless to recover unaided, the battle is half won as the AAs have it. He's hooked. Uh, he is caught as if in a psychological vice. If the jaws of it do not grip him tightly enough at first, more drinking will almost invariably turn up the screw to the point where he will cry enough. Then, as we say, he softened up. This reduces him to a state of complete dependence on whatever or whoever can stop his drinking. Uh, he is in exactly the same mental fix as the cancer patient who becomes dependent, abjectly, hopelessly dependent, if you will, on what you men of science do for cancer. And I love these words. He says, better still, he becomes sweetly reasonable, truly open-minded, as only the dying can be. And I, I take that as a description of how I should be carrying the message. I should be carrying the message in such a way that people who have my illness, and not everyone who is fat has my illness, not everyone who is anorexic has my illness, not everyone who is bulimic has my illness, not everyone who is a, an obese person has my illness. The only person who has my illness are people who can't stop once they've started and can't stop from starting. There are a lot of people in this world who can stop once they've started and just choose not to stop, and they might be persuaded by all kinds of reasons to stop. There are all kinds of people who can't stop once they've started, but have no trouble at a certain point of stopping from starting again. I have a friend like that who lost a lot of weight because his, his doctor told him to stop eating cheese, and he just decided he wouldn't eat cheese anymore. Uh, my wife, who loves her one piece of chocolate every day and probably couldn't do without it, could do without it if she discovered that chocolate were somehow, was somehow going to kill her. She would regret it and mourn the chocolate, but she would not eat chocolate anymore. People who are allergic to, uh, to, to shrimp and fish, uh, to shrimp and, and peanut, or peanuts, uh, get anaphylactic shocks that kill them, very quickly learn not to eat shrimp or peanuts and or peanuts because why would they eat something that kills them? So there are a lot of people who have the body problem without the mind problem. Um, and, but if they have my illness, then my job is to make them, as much as I'm able to do, sweetly reasonable, as only the dying can be. The big book's description of how to do this is, is relatively straightforward. It's uh, basically a short conversation. Um, you, you are somehow, uh, you, you, we, we, they, the big book is written for people who didn't have AA around them. You know, AA at the time the big book was written was only uh, centered in, it was centered in Brooklyn, uh, Akron, Ohio, and uh, Cleveland, Ohio. So uh, it was written as a set of directions for someone who didn't have the opportunity to meet anyone from AA. Uh, there were only fewer than 100 people uh, who had recovered in, in AA or members of AA at the time. Uh, so the instructions are first how to find that person, uh, how to be introduced to him, and, and, and they suggest that the family or the doctor describe you as a person uh, who, as part of his own recovery, tries to help others. So it's a, it's a person who needs, they're, they're doing you a favor. Um, and, and, and that's an important thing, because they are doing you a favor. Every person you speak to does you a favor, whether you do a good or bad job of, of explaining the program to them, or even if you do a great job and they leave and they don't, they don't join, they've helped you. Uh, and I take that, I take that uh, very seriously. 
Um, but the big book's uh, approach, it's, it's fun of working with others. It's, it's, it's basically you tell your story in such a way, your story of compulsive eating in such a way that the other person begins to understand these two aspects of the vicious circle. One is that you couldn't stop once you started, and you tell your eating stories of gorging, of not being able to stop once you started. These are very significant stories. They're individual stories. I have my own. Uh, uh, I've repeated them so often that some people know them by heart, but uh, uh, they're my own stories, and I can't stop telling them because they are the stories of my compulsive eating. But they are basically once, you know, the, the, the hand is bringing the food to the mouth, um, whether by fork or spoon or knife or sometimes the hand, and often and usually it was the hand even though it should have been the fork or the spoon. Um, but anyway, and, and it's bringing the, the food to the mouth, and the mouth is eating it, and the mind is saying, I've got to stop. I can't eat anymore. This is terrible. I must stop. I must, one more, only one more, not only one more, and I keep on eating it. And that's the, sort of the generic description. So you tell, you know, the big book says you tell that part of your story. And then you also tell the stories of all the times that you've been persuaded to go back to the food, uh, even if you've been away from it. Whether it's the diet programs and the, and the magazines and the nutritionists who, and the doctors who say, you know, give yourself a little bit of comfort food or now that you've lost your weight, you can eat one scoop of ice cream a week uh, or a half a donut. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you discover, of course, once you begin to eat that half a scoop, half a donut or uh, the one scoop of ice cream, every, the portions became bigger and more frequent. Um, but it's all those times, whether it's that kind of persuasion that other sources have told you that you can eat anything, or whether it's your own, all of the excuses you've ever developed in your life for eating, some of which seem to be rational at the time. You're really depressed. What, what, what will make you feel better? Uh, you need to be numbed out because your emotions are too deep. Uh, you feel suicidal. This seems like a nice way of committing suicide. Uh, or you want to celebrate. Uh, or they've made it especially for you, or you're standing up, or you've been good for a month, or you've been good for a week, or you've been good for uh, five minutes because you didn't eat the bun five minutes ago. Uh, whatever those reasons, those are the reasons you tell, and you tell them, you tell them in your story. You don't tell them they're compulsive eaters. They may not be. You tell them your story, and you tell them in such a way that they begin to understand that if they are like you, that those two aspects of your illness, that you can't stop once you've started and that you can't stop from starting, mean that you can never be free of compulsive eating on your own. That it's impossible. Because no matter how hard you try, your mind will always find an excuse to send you back. And once you're back, you're done. Now, if that is the experience that describes your illness, then you can tell the story in such a way that any other person who has that problem can understand it in minutes. It doesn't take hours. Once they understand that, or once you describe how you understood that, then you can describe that the only solution you have found is a solution outside of yourself to find some form of higher power to dedicate your life to, 
and to find that higher power to the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. That's the hope you bring. You bring despair, that's step one, and you bring hope, that's step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore society. Not did, not, not that in step two a higher power did restore society, but that we came to believe that step two is simply the solution. Step one is the problem, step two is the solution. Step one is despair, step two is hope. Step one is powerlessness, step two is power. And that's the description of the problem and the solution. And that the only way you found that power was through working the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. And if they care to join you, if they self-identify themselves as a person with those problems, with that particular set of problems, then you're willing to help them recover. And the only thanks they can give you is to help someone else recover. That is the only thanks they can do. They can give me. When I help someone recover, and I certainly just uh, guide them on their way, it's not me who, who does it at all. I'm, I'm a midwife. I'm not, a, I'm not giving birth. I'm a midwife. Um, the only uh, thanks that is possible to give is to help someone else because I'm not doing this for them. I am in a way, it gives me great pleasure, it gives me great joy, it makes me feel great about myself. But if I don't do it, I'm going to die. My mind is going to come back and my mind is going to persuade me, you know, Laurie, you've been good for 20 years. It's a pretty good thing, pretty good thing. You're, you're doing so well. Why don't you have something? No one will ever know. Dr. Bob actually talks about this in his last major talk. Um, and you can... You can actually hear him. There, 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 there's a tape of it available. And, and he says, um, um, I said I was quite human. I get to thinking every once in a while that this guy Bob is rather a smart individual. He's got this liquor situation right by the tail, proved it and demonstrated it. Hasn't had a drink for over 13 years. Probably could knock off a couple, and no one would be the wiser. People laugh at this point on the tape. I tell you, I'm not trying to be funny. Those thoughts actually do enter my mind. And the minute they do, I know exactly what has happened. You see, in Akron, we have the extreme good fortune to have a very nice setup at St. Thomas Hospital. The ward theoretically accommodates seven alcoholics, but the good sister Ignatius sees that it stretched a little bit. Excuse me a second. She usually has two or more others parked around somewhere. Just as soon as that idea that I could probably polish off a couple enters my mind, I think I love the way these guys talk. Uh-oh, how about the boys in the ward? You've been giving them the semi-brush-off for the last few days. You'd better get back in the job, big boy, before you get into trouble. And I pat her right back and, and am much more attentive than I had been before I got the funny idea. But I do get it every once in a while, and I'll probably go on getting it whenever I get careless about seeing the boys in the ward. Anytime I neglected them, I was thinking more of Bob than I was the ward. I wasn't being especially loving. Those fellows would come there indicating their desire for help, and I was just a little too busy to give them much of my time as if they had been panhandling on the street. Don't want to be bothered with the fellow? Ten cents to get rid of him. Why, that's easy. He could even stand two bits. Not because you love the fellow, but just to be relieved of the nuisance of his hanging on your coat sleeve. No unselfishness, no love at all indicated in that transaction. I think the kind of service that really counts is giving of yourself, and that almost invariably requires effort and time. It isn't a matter of just putting a little quiet money in the dish. That's needed but it isn't giving much for the average individual in days like these, when most people get along fairly well. I don't believe that type of giving 
would ever keep anyone sober. But giving of our own effort and strength and time is quite a different matter. I think this is what Bill learned in New York, and I didn't learn in Akron until we met. So that whole sense of giving is really important. Now, as I said, the big book gives these very simple instructions. It's a two- or three-hour uh, talk. Um, it's keep it, uh, keep it light, tell your story, tell it in such a way that they identify. If they do identify, offer to help them along their journey through the steps. Um, and they say, having had, the, uh, having had the experience yourself, you can help them give advice if they care, about, care to take it. And in the chapter working with others, though, the, the, the big book has some very clear warnings about how to help a person. Um, I'll preface it by saying that Sister Ignatia, who, who, who was mentioned in that, in that quote from Dr. Bob, uh, she gave a talk or, or was interviewed once, and she talked about how, how loving Dr. Bob was, and he was. He, he ministered for the 13 years that he was sober um, until he died. He ministered to over 5,000 alcoholics, and he gave them medical help uh, without, any, um, without any reward at all. He, he just helped them. He was a poor man, very poor man, but he did things without hope of reward or gain. Very loving, kind man who would do anything for anyone, a, a, a saint by all accounts, uh, much more of a saint uh, to most people than Bill, ever, Bill W. ever was, uh, revered and loved by, by people. But Do Sister Ignatia talks about how Dr. Bob would come to her and say, you know that guy in bed number two? Kick him out. He doesn't really get this program. He's not interested. He just wants a free, free hand. Uh, he just wants to be held. He wants his hands to be held. And there's a lot of toughness in the big book about dealing with people. Uh, it's toughness that, that I think we miss in OA. Um, when I joined OA, and you know, I, I travel around uh, much of North America and some of Europe, and I, I see this. I see this everywhere I go. Uh, the same kind of thing that I met when I first joined OA about 27 years ago. And that is, you come in and the newcomer is told, welcome. This is a wonderful place. We offer you unconditional love. We love you. We love you so much. And, you know, we're emotionally and physically and spiritually sick. And the, and the steps help us spiritually. And we're emotionally better. And some of us are physically better. But not all of us. But we're working on it. And, um, you know, and uh, you know, I, I personally, you know, I'm... I'm uh, haven't been absent for that long. I've been in the program for a very long time, but I feel so much better because people are so loving here. And um, we forget our primary purpose. What is Tradition uh, 5? It's our primary purpose. The primary purpose of every OA group is to carry the message to those who still suffer, the message of recovery to those who still suffer. And uh, the preamble, uh, uh, our, our, our standard preamble, was just amended at the latest World Service Business Conference to say the message of recovery to the 12 steps to those who still suffer, because that is what the message of recovery is, the 12 steps of our program as the group conscience of OANA. So how do we carry this message? Uh, we look at our literature, and it is full of love and tolerance. Is it full of toughness? I'm not sure. Listen, listen to the big book on, on this issue. They talk about whether you give service to someone, whether you help someone out. Um, and, uh, and they say, you know, yes and no. Uh, we have to help others. We have to help them. They talk about 
you know, sharing your money in your home and interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business on page 97, uh, loss of many nights' sleep, helping people so much. But they say, and they say this, for the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well, the page 98, little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Yet we do go to great extremes to provide each other with these very things when such action is warranted. This may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. It is not the matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. That often makes a difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. I, I, I take these words really seriously. He clamors for this or, or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. Now, the big book was written for people who did not have sponsors available to them. It now, it's now talking in this chapter, working with others, about how to sponsor. And one of the things it's saying is that no one should become dependent upon you. You are the sponsor. I take this very seriously, too. When I sponsor, I'm not in charge of that person's recovery. I take no responsibility for it whatsoever. I'm a resource. That's all I am. I have, in effect, a business-like relationship with them. I have some experience with the steps. I will share it and help them however they need to be helped to get abstinent, to remain abstinent, and to work the steps. But I'm not in charge of their recovery, and therefore it's not up to me as to whether they remain abstinent or whether they work the steps. Uh, I don't want them to become dependent upon me. They don't come to me for, for uh, instructions on what to do. I tell them, this is, what I, this is what I can do for you if you want it. I'm here to help you. Uh, they don't, I don't require them to phone me. I don't require them to contact me. If they want to die, it's up to them. It's not up to me. If they want to recover, it's up to them. It's not up to me. Um, so it's their job to keep up with the steps and to work with me as much as they want to use me. And I'm available to them at any time if they want to use me. Um, I will often say to people that uh, what, what they need, uh, what every compulsive eater who begins uh, to work the steps needs are three plans. The first is a plan of eating that will allow them to achieve abstinence. And I work with them hard, really hard, to develop a plan of eating. Because I think, I, I don't even think, I know that in this program there are all kinds of theories that all kinds of people have whether they get them from books or from, uh, uh, you know, uh, other um, uh, diets, uh, other diet plans, or whether they get them from their own intuition or whether they get them from their own experience. All kinds of people who are more than willing to say to someone else, you should adopt what I have adopted. The plan of eating you should have is the plan of eating that I follow. And that's contrary to the group conscience of Overeaters Anonymous, as expressed in the pamphlet, A Dignity of Choice. A dignity of choice says very clearly that every person should develop his or her own plan of eating to make certain that it eliminates from their eating those 
foods and eating behaviors which are their problem and not someone else's. Listening in on this phone are people uh, on this phone call are people who can eat what I cannot eat, and I have no doubt that I can eat what a bunch of other people on this uh, on this uh, phone line cannot eat, um, because. Each of us has abused his or her body in a certain way. Each of us has a particular genetic predisposition. Whatever it is, whatever the reasons are, our experiences with food differ. And therefore, we have to have our own individual plan of eating. I, I often will work with the person very carefully to talk about fats because uh, within OA, there's a huge movement to deal with sugar and flour, but not a huge movement to deal with fats. And people often say, I had to put the sugar away. When I ask them, and that made me feel better, and I ask them, what does sugar mean to you? And they will always say things like cakes and desserts and sweets and ice creams. And I say, you know, those are combinations of sugar and fat. Uh, sugar and fat, not just sugar. Sugar is hard rock candy. Sugar is a bowl of sugar. Uh, that's what sugar is. Uh, sugar is something added to non uh, to uh, to all kinds of things. But when you talk about getting rid of cakes, you're talking about getting rid of fat and sugar. And what you've got to be careful of, because there are a lot of plans of eating within our program that seem to allow, is substituting the fat that you used to get from cakes with fat that you get now with salt. And that's fat on baked potatoes. You know, I won't eat, I won't eat any bread. I won't have any bread. But give me a potato and put the butter on it and put the sour cream on it and put the bacon bits on it. Um, uh, you know, uh, crunchy things and, and all kinds of foods that are allowed if you eliminate only sugar. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of research on, on sugar and fat and salt and fat. Uh, so I, I emphasize that. I don't push it on them. I mean, people say, no, my only problem is sugar. That's fine. I, I don't care. It's, it's, it's what people honestly believe is their problem, but I think that they should have all the information uh, before they make their choices about what their problems, uh, what their food problems are. That's the first kind of plan, a plan of eating. And that plan of eating can be, can range from counting calories, as, as our co-founder uh, Roseanne uh, did, and, and as the first man in, in OA, AG, did. Uh, it could uh, be a plan of eating that says what, 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 he, what we avoid, what we abstain from. That's the one that, that I've adopted. Uh, I ad I, I've adopted a plan of eating that allows me to that in which I know what I don't eat and I know what eating behaviors I don't indulge in, and then I, I work around that by eating the things I can eat. And it, it, also, and it also goes to, to weight and measure portions because that deals with volume issues, uh, and it goes to um, a plan of eating that says what you can eat because once you know what you can eat, that eliminates all the other things that you can't eat. Um, it doesn't matter what we arrive at. Uh, so I say that's, you need a plan of eating that will allow you to abstain from the foods, food ingredients, and eating behaviors that uh, uh, cause you uh, the physical cravings that say you can't stop. The second plan you need is a timeline for working the steps. You have to have a sense of completion. What, what's reasonable for working the steps so that you know within one month, two months, three months, four months, however long it will be, you'll have achieved the neutrality that I now have and that I've had for over 20 years. Um, I did it by working the steps. If you believe that the steps provide the solution for you, 
then develop a strategy, a timeline for working the steps so that you know, okay, I've got to hang on by the skin of my teeth for one month, two months, three months, but my, my, the promise I have is that by the time I finish step nine, I will no longer want these foods. So if I can just hang on for X number of weeks, months, I uh, hope not years, <laughs> weeks or months, uh, then I know if I can just hang on, I will achieve uh, a recovery. <coughs> Excuse me. And the third plan is uh, how you plan on keeping abstinent during the time period that you're working the steps uh, to, to the point of recovery, that you're working steps four through nine. And that can be a plan that requires you to phone in every day, phone your food in every day. I will often say to my sponsees who want to do that, if you want to phone your food in every day, you're welcome to phone it in to me, but you do a far more good if you phoned it in to some newcomer or someone who's still suffering. If you phoned that person and said, could you help me out? Can I just phone my food into you every day? It would really help me tremendously. It would be true, but it would also be helping them. And uh, some people do that. Uh, it, involves, uh, it involves what you're going to do if you're tempted. Are you going to phone someone? Are you going to read literature? Are you uh, going to drink a glass of water? Are you going to say, as I used to years ago, I'll have that in 10 minutes, or I'll have that tomorrow, or I'll save it for my sponsor? What are you going to do to keep you from temptation, to keep your mind from, from, uh, from sending you back while you're working the set? So those are the three plans that I ask people to develop. And then I take them through the big book's direction. Uh, it's up to them to remember where we are, and it's up to them to remember um, uh, whether they want to contact me or not. Um, I, I, uh, I also don't give them any advice. Uh, either they haven't yet done step four, so I say to them, well, if they have any problems, well, that's something you should be putting on your step four, because your step four through nine will tell you exactly how to handle that problem. I have no idea how to handle your problem. I know how I would handle my problem if, if, if that were my problem, but I don't know how to handle your problem. And if the people have already reached step nine, then they know, I mean, all, all my sponsees who have reached step nine and have recovered, they're busy working with other sponsees. And the times that they call me, they call me for two main reasons. One is if they're just beginning to sponsor or they, they need someone with more experience than they about sponsoring someone, they'll phone me and say, I'm having a little difficulty. What do I do with this person? Here's a problem I have. And I give them my experience. My experience generally will be, uh, gee, I don't know. Why don't you do a step four through nine on them or what I call a step 10? And the other is they will call me if they're going to do a step 10, uh, which is step four through nine, and they want, to, they want me to hear their step five part of, of the step 10. The, uh, hear their, hear their, uh, their story. Um, that's basically what we do. I do not keep major contact with them. Why should they spend time with me when their job is to spend time with those who still suffer? And that's the same position I take, uh, the same uh, approach I take. My job is to help those who still suffer, not those who have recovered. It has always, well, there are many different ways of sponsoring in this program. This is how I sponsor. I, I sponsor, I think, according to the way the big book uh, says I, I don't want anyone, anyone, dependent upon me, and, and, and I take and I and I'm really clear that I don't want to give anyone any advice. Uh, suggestions not to work the steps. That's something different. But no advice on how to live their lives. Nor do I want to be their confessor or their. I'm a lawyer. I don't want to be their lawyer, their confessor, their advice giver, their mother or their father. I'm there, and my only job is to help them um, 
help them work the steps. The steps, their God, the God that they discover through working the steps will give them the truths and the guidance that they need. I can't. I'm not God. That's what I, that's what I admitted when I did step one and step two. I'm not God. And, and therefore, I am in no position to give advice. But there are many ways of doing uh, of, of sponsoring, and I'm, I'm quite aware of, of ways of sponsoring, which people speak to their sponsor every day, uh, and, and in which people uh, make phone calls all the time, and there's a much more regular and, and structured uh, approach to, uh, to uh, working the steps. And that doesn't trouble me at all. There's no problem with how to carry the message. There are thousands of different ways of carrying it. I, I maybe should have started off by saying that although I'm a big book thumper, that doesn't mean that I think the big book is the only way of doing the steps. I have friends in this program who are more spiritual than I am who work the steps completely differently. And I love them and admire them and respect them. And, uh, and, if, and what works for them, if what works for them works for them, I would say why change to what, I, what works for me? The only time I suggest that people work the steps the big book way is if working the steps the way they've tried hasn't worked for them. Then maybe they should work the steps another way. Um, my only concern with the sponsorship that requires uh, a lot of contact, even with those who have already recovered, is when there are not enough sponsors in the room for those who have not recovered. I've been to too many meetings where people have where people will say, you know, I've been absent for tw 10 years, but I'm not available to sponsor. I've been absent for 15 years, but I'm not available to sponsor. And, and they go around the room, and there's no one available to sponsor, and there might be four or five newcomers in the room, or, uh, and even and more who haven't recovered, people in relapse. And uh, there's no one available to sponsor them, because the people who sponsor are sponsoring in such a way that they have to have so much contact with people with their sponsees that they don't have time for those uh, who still suffer. And I've been to meetings where at a break, newcomers stand around and, uh, and no one talks to them uh, because uh, sponsors are meeting with their sponsees. And yet the newcomers are, are among the most important people in the room. Uh, when I meet with my sponsees and we notice a newcomer who doesn't have anyone to talk to them, uh, I'll say to the sponsee, and well, the sponsee will often say to me, let's go talk to that person, you know, what we're talking about can wait. Um, that's my only. That's my only concern. So my method of sponsoring is is very spare, uh, and it allows me uh, never to turn down a sponsorship. Uh, people often turn me down because I don't give them the love and support that they want, the emotional support that they want. But it's not my job to give them emotional support. It's my job to help them work the steps. The steps provide them the real support. They will find their God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man and woman that he, can, he or she can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he or she trust in God and clean house. Their job is to clean house. And the more I provide emotional support to them, the less they'll be inclined to clean house. How many people do we know in this program who sit around and just get emotionally good vibes from the meeting and sit around and continue to gain weight or, or not lose weight and enjoy the meeting because it gives them an opportunity to be accepted unconditionally. Our, our meeting is not there to accept people unconditionally. We accept them unconditionally on the understanding that they have a desire to stop eating compulsively. And to stop eating compulsively means a desire to work the steps. And if they don't have a desire to work the steps, well, what are they doing in the meetings? And how are our meetings 
functioning in such a way as to make certain that it's clear what our job is. If Tradition 5 says the primary purpose of every OA group is to carry the message of recovery to those who still suffer, and it's clear that the message of recovery is through the 12 steps, then how are our meetings carrying that message? To the, and, and this is where I want to I talk about. Are the meetings carrying the message in such a way that the 12 steps are paramount, that the 12 steps are shown as the path to recovery? There are many meetings that don't even, that, that they may read the 12 steps, but that are all about all kinds of other topics. I was responsible for one, such a meeting once. It went on for six or seven years, and it died. And it should have died. And uh, it, the six or seven years it went on, uh, it got smaller and smaller. It started off as sort of an adjunct between the meetings. We used to go to a Tuesday evening meeting, and so we set this meeting for Friday noon uh, as a pick-me-up. And, and we, the same people who went to the Tuesday evening would go to the Friday noon, and we, we deliberately kept it unstructured, and so we'd, we'd have discussions about readings and things like that. That was great. But we began to find ourselves enjoying that meeting so much more because it wasn't reminding us of what we had to be doing. And I was in relapse at the time, so I wasn't aware of what was going on. Um, that we stopped going to the Tuesday evening meeting, and this meeting became our main meeting. And uh, this noon meeting, well, this meeting was so unstructured that we never discussed the steps. We discussed all kinds of other wonderful topics that, that the program likes us to talk about, uh, that we, we talk about. Uh, we'd, read a, uh, we'd read something, but we'd always pick something that wasn't about the steps, uh, and we'd discuss it. It was great. We had uh, an abstinence lunch, well, at least. Yeah, it was abstinent. I mean, it had nothing to do with what I was eating outside of that lunch, but it was abstinent during the lunch. Um, and uh, and we, we, we enjoyed it. It was fellowship. It was fellowship. It wasn't recovery, and it wasn't a message of recovery. It was just a message of fellowship. Uh, excuse me, I have to blow my nose. Please excuse me. I have a cold. Sorry about that. So that that uh, that uh, meeting died. And the meetings that I know work are meetings where the 12 steps are in some way, shape, or form made to be paramount. doesn't mean they can't be about other topics. But it, me, it does mean that the steps are shown as the message of recovery and that the meetings are geared to those who still suffer, not those who have recovered. Um, I feel relatively strongly about this, but I, I won't go into, into uh, great detail. I, I just think that uh, a meeting, for instance, that doesn't figure out what it's going to do about newcomers when they come is a meeting that really should be considering where it's going. Uh, I think, by the way, also, uh, you know, I talked about sponsorship. Um, our definition of abstinence now in, requires uh, or now includes the concept of working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, how can I carry the message well if I'm not working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight? Uh, what is the reason I came to OA? What is the reason any addict comes to any 12-step program? It isn't to find love and happiness beyond our wildest dreams. It is to stop this, this horrible addiction. It is to find a way out of the horrible predicament that I find myself in. For a compulsive eater, it's to stop eating compulsively. That's what I want to do. That's why I've come to this meeting. I don't come to the meeting to get hugs. It's nice to get hugs, but that's not why I came to the meeting. And if people are coming to the meeting simply to get hugs, maybe they should join a support group. 
because the support group can give them the hugs without without uh, diluting the message of the group, which is the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. So a group should be focused on the newcomer and those who still suffer. It, it should figure out how best to carry the message. And frankly, I think it should make it uncomfortable for a participant to live in the problem rather than in the solution. Um, you know, I, I have friends in AA. I'm not an AA, but I have friends in AA. I've, 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 I've asked them a number of times, what would happen if a guy got up in an AA meeting and said, I've been drunk for the last six weeks and I'm drunk right now, but let me tell you everything I know about step three. And, uh, you know, I get varied responses depending upon how rough or, or gentle or polite that AA meeting is. But the answer is consistently that that person might speak once or might be drowned out and told to shut up and take the cotton out of uh, his ears or her ears and put it in their mouth. Um, but at the very least, that person would be talked to right afterward and say, you know nothing. How can you know anything if you're still drunk? You might talk a good talk, but if you're not walking the walk, how can you talk about step three? And yet, in a way, we're full of that. We have all kinds of people who don't even understand that they haven't recovered or that they're not working towards recovery, who are allowed to live within their illness because we're too nice. And I was the victim of that. For uh, you know, I told you how that uh, I talked about how that meeting died, and I, I uh, and and I, I started going to a much stronger meeting, and it was a really good meeting, and I really liked it. But I was in relapse. I I had been in the program for six or seven years, and I I um, I was very close to what I was when I started. I'd lost a lot of weight, then relapse, lost, relapse, lost, relapse. But I was really I was I was getting really fat, and people would say to me, "How are you, Laurie?" I'd say, oh, "I'm fine." And, uh, oh, great, glad to hear you're good, you know, good to hear your voice, you know, you talk so well, and et cetera, et cetera. One day, one fateful day, and I sure wish I knew what the day was, what date it was, but it was uh, sometime in 1992 or, or early 93, late 92 or early 93, the shyest woman in the room came up to me, and she said, how are you, Laura? I said, fine. She looked at me deep in the eyes and she said, I mean, really? And that hit me, in the, hit me right between the eyes. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I just, I said, I'm in terrible shape. I'm in awful, awful shape. And uh, she sat down with me just before the meeting and then we sat for an hour after the meeting and for the next three or four months, I, I, I phoned her. She gave me all the support in the world. Uh, she helped me. Uh, get out of my my uh, out of my relapse, uh, and then I, I and I then I began to uh, study the the big book uh, with with a person who really knew it well uh, as a series of directions, and I finally accepted the notion that there were certain foods and certain eating behaviors I could never indulge. But that woman, the shyest woman in the room, told me later that she prayed for two or three weeks before she said anything. She prayed to find the right words, and she found them. Now, if she hadn't, I might have said, how dare you take my inventory? This is not appropriate. No one in OA has the right to take my inventory. Uh, and I would have gone, and what would I have done? I probably would have eaten over it, that's for sure. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to go back to that meeting. 
because uh, oh, what a horrible meeting it is that people think they have the right to take the, to take uh, inventories of others. And I probably would have left OA. And you know what? OA would have been the better for it because I kept going. I because if that woman hadn't really pushed me with love and tolerance and 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 true love, the love that says I'm willing to take a chance at offending you out of love for you. That woman hadn't done that. And I had gone on, kept going to those meetings, continuing to eat and relapse and talk with all kinds of authority. I, 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 well, I was harming, and I did, I'm sure I harmed a lot of people who came to those meetings as newcomers and listened to this authoritative man speak with great certainty about things he obviously knew nothing about. And, uh, and if that was OA, then what did OA have to offer? Really? And isn't that the experience of so many of us in this program? That we go to these meetings and we listen to people talk with great authority about things that they surely don't look like they know anything about? So for me, meetings uh, really should make it uncomfortable. We should find a way to make it uncomfortable. One of the ways of making it is to make them into business-like meetings where we, we have an agenda, and the agenda is to talk about the steps, not to talk about what went on in your life yesterday, uh, not to talk about how you're feeling, and not to uh, encourage people to say, I know just how you feel. There, there, there. Let's give each other a hug. Uh, at the meetings I go to, as a result of the uh, experience I had uh, going to a meeting outside of the meetings I go to, I, I suggest that we do this. Instead of uh, you know, we, we say the serenity prayer or whatever the prayer is. Instead of, hold, well, we do hold hands. It's still not something I like, but we, we hold hands. But instead of saying, you know, keep coming back, it works if you work it and bring a lot of love and you're worth it, etc., etc., we repeat the OA responsibility pledge, always to extend the hand and heart of OA to all those who share my compulsion. For this, I am responsible. That's how we end the meeting to remember that our job is to carry the message of recovery to those who still suffer. That's what I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for giving anyone any love whatsoever other than as it comes out in practicing the, the principles of, of my higher power in, in, in all my heart and all my life. That's the kind of love I give to everyone. But it's not my job to make anyone feel good in this program, if, in the moment. It is my job to carry the message that will make them feel transcendently fine and, and, and spiritual and to help them find the spirituality that they need if they have my problem. Um, I'm just looking to see if there's anything else. I, I always have things I like to talk about. Um, oh, yeah, I, I know what I wanted to say. Uh, well, first of all, I, I did want to say that if anyone wants to read more about what I've said or, or, or get an understanding of, of a bit, uh, an approach to the big book as a set of directions, I, I encourage you to go to the website oabigbook.info, O-A-B-I-G-B-O-O-K dot I-N-F-O, uh, where you can get all kinds of uh, information and, and download. Um, I also wanted to talk to those who only go to the telephone meetings. Uh, you know, the, the Vision for You meetings are wonderful, and I've met lots of people who listen to them and, and, and have got so much out of them. And I certainly get a lot out of them by, by speaking at them, and I'm happy to do that. And it's wonderful to be connected to people all over, I think all around the world, certainly all around the United States and Canada. Um, but if you go to this meeting and go to, uh, if you attend the telephone meetings and attend no meetings in your hometown, why is that? 
Um, obviously, there are some people who can't attend. They're physically unable to attend. Uh, and if you say, well, there, there are no good meetings in my town, or if you say, well, there are no meetings in my town, then the question is, how seriously do you take this program? How seriously are you, are you going to take, take the program and carry the message to those who still suffer? Um, are you able to set up a meeting? Big Book gives you directions on how to do that, and the OA has its own uh, help to set up a meeting. Uh, if the meeting is not good, have you figured out maybe how to make that meeting better or to set up your own meeting that's a better meeting? Uh, how seriously do you take this? Is this life or death for you? Because it is for me. Now, I can tell you that if I were in a town, if I moved to a town where there was no OA, I would try and set up a way because I need someone to carry the message too. For me, it's life or death. Um, I think that step 12 also has to be looked at from OA's perspective. We, as a fellowship, carry a message through our website, through whatever publications we have, and through our members. Uh, we don't always, well, I, I think we don't always, much of the time, carry the message of recovery to those who still suffer. The, the preamble was just amended, as I said, and I think that's wonderful to carry the message of recovery to the 12 steps. We have to talk about recovery much more than we do. We, have, we, don't have to, we should not be ashamed of saying, those of us who have finished step nine and are working the maintenance steps of step 10 through 12, we should not be ashamed to say that we have recovered, that we are different from what we used to be. Because it's not us. It's not me, not I, whatever. I haven't done this. Uh, it was given to me. It was given to me by working the steps. By working the steps, I have achieved this neutrality that, is, uh, that, the, that I read to you that the big book discusses. And this neutrality is a gift, a gift from heaven, if you will. It certainly isn't something that I was able to do myself. So when I say I have recovered, and one of my friends in, in Atlanta says uh, recovered but not cured, um, I have recovered on a daily basis, day by day, uh, one day at a time, I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, as the big book says. And we have to tell this recovery because that is what people come to the meeting. Oh, I think I've talked enough, Leah. Uh, it wasn't quite an hour and a half, but I, I think that that's my story. I'll stick to it. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Thank you so very much, oh. Lori. Thank you so very much yeah. for your revealing and thorough explanation oh. of Step 12. We appreciate it. I don't know. Can anyone unmute? Thank you, Lori. Thank you. Thank you. Lori, can you hear me now? Have I been talking for an hour and 22 minutes without (laughs) without being heard? Lori, can you hear me? Lori? I hear both of you. I hear both of you. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Lori, thank you. I don't know 
why you can't hear me. Uh, thank you very much for your revealing and thorough explanation of Step 12. Much, much appreciated. We now open the line for any questions you may have related to what Lori shared this morning, and you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Any questions this morning? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, hi, hi, Lori. Uh, this is Marilyn in Florida, and uh, I just want to thank you so, so much. I love the idea of doing the responsibility pledge at the end of the meeting. Um, I I love your no-nonsense attitude, and um, I, I, I believe I met you at a uh, Florida State Convention uh, quite a while ago, and uh, you, you've given me a, no, a new jolt, and thank you for being here, and God bless you. Can thank you hear you. me, Lori? I, I heard you. <laughs> thank okay. you. Thank Take you care, very everybody. Much. God bless. Thank you. Any other questions this morning for Lori? Hi, Leah. This is Rose. Hi, Rose. Good morning. Let me just check on Lori. Lori, are you are you on the line with us? Star one to unmute Lori. Leah doesn't appear. These on the phone. Thank you, Mel. Um, okay. Do you have the ability to give him a quick call? Hey, hey, it's Lori. I Oh, there you are, Lori. Great. Okay, very good. Rose, go ahead, please. Well, wait a minute. Just a minute. Have I missed? Have you heard me asking where everyone is? Uh, that we heard you the whole time you shared on step twelve. I think then uh, perhaps you were muted for a moment or two. Oh, so you didn't hear me saying where is everyone? Well, initially yes. Initially okay. yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. I don't know what. Very happened. good. Okay. It happens. We're dealing with technology here, so sometimes these things happen. Rose would like to ask a question. Go ahead, Rose. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Laurie. Thank you. Thank you very much for for everything on Step Twelve. It was um, a gift um, from God to hear you talk today. Um, I do have a question. Uh, early, as you started talking, you said that um, if a person has more than one addictions. Um, obviously, and as you said, they must carry the message of their recovery into all their addictions. So my question is, if if you do have more than one addiction, how how do you do? How how are you doing that? Well, I don't if, have more than one addiction. Okay, if, okay, if you if don't I do, I have, have, I'll tell you how my friends do it. They just go to a whole bunch of meetings and they carry the message to a whole bunch of people in different programs. Splitting the time up that way, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's life or death for them. Yes, I, I mean I I understand because um, I I have uh, a low bottom uh, story in four specific addictions, mm -hmm. and they're of equal um, you know uh, equal seriousness of all of them, and um, and it's been it's been coming to me. Thank God, this past year, my um, first addiction was to food. And um, I have been, um, I've worked for and been given a recovery with the food. And and I have a message to carry in three other areas as well. And and I'm really asking, you know, God to, um, 
to open up the way for me to give the time. I'm not unwilling. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not unwilling to give the time, but to, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, make it clear. But And so when you said that, I said, whoa, <laughs> this most definitely is an opening um, for me to now seek further. And mm-hmm. so if you had specifics, I, I welcome them. And well, I, I, I mean, there, my, my only comment is, is, is in all things there is a balance. And, and um, you know, my, my friends who do this, uh, it depends on, on, on – I have one friend who is retired, has all the time in the world and uh, resources in the world, and he just – he's a – I mean, he's a 12-stepper probably about 16 hours a day. Uh, now, that I, that's beyond me. I work. I have a family. I, I, uh, you know, I, I have uh, obligations outside, of, uh, outside of, o, uh, of OA, and I have friends in AA and OA uh, who also have obligations, and they balance them. I mean, I, when, I, when people ask me to sponsor them, for instance, um, I will say, well, let's work out times we can meet, and I, I don't always meet with them like the next day or, or, or things of that sort. I... Uh, I, I work with them as much as they as, as I'm able to work with them. So I, I balance off my life, but I make I, I but my friends who are in more than uh, one uh, 12-step group balance their lives in that respect, and and you know they they find their sponsees as they find them, and things usually work out as long as you adopt a way of of um, of sponsoring that doesn't require uh, you know a, a daily kind of um, of, uh, of commitment, because then it becomes really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. very, very much. Thank you, Rose. Anyone Hi, else? my name's Lori from New Jersey. I have a question for Lori. Um, Please go ahead. Okay. Like, I'm new in program. I'm only nine months, but, like, I tend to look at anyone who's overweight probably as a compulsive or reader. Like, how do you really know? Like we're here, we're supposed to, you know, yep. reach out and help people that are compulsive eaters. But like, how do you know who is and who isn't? Well, and there was one thing that you kept saying, though. You kept saying, um, "Once I start, I can't stop." But I, I didn't understand the second part to what you said. Oh, okay. Well, uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, we don't know who is a compulsive eater. Only the people themselves know whether they are or not. We we don't we don't we don't have a test. We have a test for them, but but it's not up to us to determine whether they passed it or not. So I have no idea who is a compulsive eater, who is not. Um, you know, I, I uh, what I say to people is, if you have my problem, then I have a solution. Well, I found a solution for myself, and it may work for you. Um, but the just to make clear what the test is, there's a twofold test. If at times you can't stop once you've started, that's one side of the test. And, and I think you, you said, Laurie, that – what a nice name. Uh, you said that uh, uh, you, uh, you understand that part. The other part of the test, found in the big book at any rate, is whether or not you can keep from starting again, whether or not your mind keeps playing tricks on you and gives you permission to go back to the foods or the food ingredients or the eating behaviors that you know cause you these uncontrollable cravings. And if that has happened to you, not you personally, but that, and I, I would say this to a, to a person I'm talking to, if that has happened to you uh, at times, and I go through my own experiences of all the different uh, excuses I've had in my life, you know, I, I mean, ranging from the stupidity of I'm standing, I'm standing up so it doesn't count, 
or I've exercised for 20 minutes, so you know these 500 calories don't don't count. Um, to uh, you know, I I'm uh, I didn't eat the bun at, at supper time, so I'm I'm allowed the cheesecake at at, at snack. Um, to the the deeply emotional reasons why many of us uh, think we eat. Uh, you know, no one loves me. Too many people love me. Uh, I'm happy. I'm sad. Uh, all of these reasons. If 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 there are times when my mind just goes off in a click, and all the reasons I have for knowing I shouldn't be eating just come quick. Okay, I'll have some. You know, I, I mean, there's a story. Bill tells a story in in one of his books about how he knows he can't have so so much as one drink. This is before he finds uh, the twelve step. And he knows he can't have even one drink, and he swears off. And he's a big business deal coming up, and he has to keep sober. And someone has a jug of whiskey in a hotel room and says, well, I have some. Oh, no, I'm not drinking. He passes around, and then, well, have some. I'm not drinking. Passes around. Then a third time, have some. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is from Tennessee. You can't get that in, in, in whatever state they're in. Oh, okay, says Bill. Quick, you know. It's a little quick. And they don't happen to have to happen all the time, every time. They have to happen enough times that you realize that they can happen all the time. Does that help? Yes, it does. I, I thank you, and I, I really loved everything you said today. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Lori, for the question. Anyone hi. else? Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Esther? This is... It's Esther. Hello? Hello. Uh, I heard somebody, and then Esther will be second. Go ahead. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. Hi, it's Francis from New York. I I really appreciated your share, Lori. And um, one this one of the things you talked about is just going to these meetings that are very touchy feeling, feely and comfortable, but not necessarily getting to the root of recovery. And I've gone to several meetings where that's the case and so here I am listening and I'm in relapse so I'm really trying to get out of relapse um, and so I'll go to a meeting and I'll think well this is great um, I'm going to go to a meeting which is a big deal for me because I have several kids and a family and responsibilities and everything and they're not local so I will drive you know 30 to 40 minutes to go and then you'll have people who are who are speaking or qualifying who are visibly fat and it's not very inspiring. No. <laughs> so I, you know, and one of my friends said, oh, that, that means an unbelievable meeting, but there's a lot of what she calls fat recovery. So what do you think of, like, what do you do? Well, you I, know? I, I, I have a lot of answers to that, so I'll, I'll give you a few of them. Um, one is that if you haven't yet recovered, you don't need a meeting to recover. Uh, what What you need is, the steps, and you need to work the steps. And uh, and and one of the things to put down as you work through steps four through nine is that meeting as a resentment. If you do it the big book way, you you, you know, and if you go to that website I suggested, oabigbook.info, you'll you'll see a whole bunch of um, guides for for using uh, forms for doing step four, which are very very useful. Um, you would put that meeting down as a resentment because it's, it it seems to be such a waste of time. And, uh, and, and you would work it through it and find out uh, what it is that you have to do in relation to that meeting. But, you know, recovery is separate from a meeting. I, I go to meetings not to recover. I go to meetings to find someone to help recover uh, because, of course, I've, I'm at the stage where, where meetings are, are means for me to, to find someone who needs help. Um, but those who, who, uh, who have meetings that don't give them what they want should figure out 
uh, first of all, how to do the steps separately. Maybe there's someone in that meeting. And I often get people uh, uh, writing to me and, and saying that. Um, there's probably at least one or two other people in that meeting who feel the same way. Uh, someone who at least wants recovery. There's, you know, you might even sort of announce, you know, there must be a place for announcements, or, or if there isn't, you can certainly make one, that you're looking for someone to work the steps with. Uh, someone who's willing to work the steps, say the big book way, just give, give an example, or in a, in a particular way. Will anyone be your buddy? Uh, not looking for sponsor necessarily, but looking for someone who has the same desire to work the steps. And you guys could do that. Uh, and, and you might find someone close by you who, who might want to do that as well, you know, closer than just at that meeting. Um, you could raise it in a business uh, meeting. You could say, I'm having real concerns about how this meeting is operating, and I'd like to have a business meeting to discuss those concerns. Uh, that's part of uh, the group uh, process, your group conscience. Um, or you could set up your own meeting. You don't have to be recovered to set up a meeting. You could set up a meeting which has hope, which brings in speakers, which, uh, which you know, in your own hometown. I mean, nothing stops you from doing that, too. Um, it's not the most daunting thing in the world. You just set up a meeting. And even if no one comes, you, you're devoting an hour to, to being there available. And maybe the fifth time someone comes and you have someone to talk to and you have someone to work the steps with. Um, I'm throwing all these ideas out. Does any of them make sense to you? They do. I just I went to some kind of convention and I found this, somebody I wanted to work the steps with. And she said, okay, well, then I'll work the steps with you, but you have to go find somebody who will give you and do a food plan with you. So I've been looking for that perfect food plant person, and so I haven't gone to the steps yet with uh, her. Well, uh, if that person uh, uh, tells you that the food plan must be of a certain kind, I would I would certainly ask why. Well, I'd read the plan for the dignity of choice, which should give you some assistance. Okay. Uh, uh, I... Um, Clearly, you, you should be abstinent when you work the steps. I mean, that's taken for granted in every 12-step program, right? You, you're, you're sober. Right, 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 exactly. Um, but what sobriety means to every member, to each member of Overeaters Anonymous, clearly, according to the group conscience of OA, depends on that person. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always good to get advice. But really, you should, you should adopt a plan of eating that makes clear that you know in your deepest heart eliminates the foods that you know cause you problems and eliminates eating behaviors that you know cause you problems. And if there's a series of foods, if there's even one food that you think to yourself, I'll never be able to give that up, give that up. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a very yeah. good, that's one good guy. That, well, well, the sugar, it was the sugar fat. But thank yeah. you so much. I really appreciate your good answer. Luck. Hello, this is Harper. Hi, Harper. Hi. One moment, please, Esther. You're next, and then we'll go to Harper. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, my name's Esther, compulsive reader, also in Canada. Thanks so much, Lori. Hi. I had a question I've always wanted to ask. Do you um, do you think it's uh, acceptable, especially when I'm um, carrying the message, sponsoring people on the telephone who are out of town, to be doing something you know else with my hands at the same time? I don't know, folding laundry peeling vegetables, because I found that otherwise it limits the amount of people, you know, to, that 
that one could work with. Um, so, so I wasn't sure if that was inappropriate or if that was just, you know. The reason I'm laughing is that I was just clicking on something on my email oh. <laughs> while you asked that question. No, I don't think it is appropriate, <laughs> even though I just did it. Um, that's why I don't like telephones, right. uh, frankly. Um, I, I mean, I don't meet with my sponsees on the telephone. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I meet with them in person because I, it's very hard to concentrate when, I, uh, when I'm, I'm, um, I'm doing something else. Of course, it, it depends on what you mean by meeting with sponsors. If you're, if you're meeting with, with, with people, like if it's an intense discussion. Hi. Yes. Yeah, if it's an intense discussion, I would say it's not appropriate because you've got to be devoting yourself. And, and, but, but that's why I hate the telephone because I find it almost impossible to close my eyes and to concentrate on the voice. It's just I'm easily distracted, and it's very hard for me. So I avoid. Hello? Hold on one second. Lori, star one to unmute. I'm unmuted. Okay. Okay. Continue, Lori. Go ahead. What, what, how much did I did I miss? We just two seconds. You were oh, out. That's seconds. it. Okay. Continue. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, I mean, from my point of view, uh, if you can meet face to face, you ought to meet face to face. It is the way to do. Uh, if you can't, uh, uh, and it's a really intense discussion, I, I, I mean, I, I close my eyes. I, I just, I, I just can't do anything else. If, if it's if it's if you're able to say if it's just a talk, I mean, I, I you know, from my point of view, uh, the the question is what is the the nature and the purpose of the call. But if you're having a chat and if it's a kind of like a daily kind of chat, a different way of sponsoring from the way I do it, but a, certainly a valid way of sponsoring, then I, I don't think it's it's wrong. I, I guess it's important that the other person know that you're doing something at the same time, and you ask permission to do that. I mean, I suppose it's you know it it, it would. You know, if the person is telling you something deep and emotional and, and, and something that is really uh, personal and you're clattering the dishes, and that's a very discordant thing to do, so they should know what you're doing and you should ask them permission to do it. I don't have an answer to that question. I'm, I'm presuming that, every, that it's quiet, not that there's a lot of noise, but if, uh, if, I even ex- if one is explaining, let's say, how to do column four of, you know, the resentment inventory and oh, I, you know that, given that I've, you know we've we could have said it already many many times and it, you know we're able to speak about it without you know necessarily sitting and you know with the big book open in front of us if, if you find it uh it works then it works i i don't i mean i think you have to look into your own conscience and figure out what's right for you mm-hmm. and i don't think there's an easy answer i don't think there's any answer i know my problem with the telephone and I know that I'm much too easily distracted. Okay. You know, I could hear your question while I was looking at my email, but it wasn't fair <laughs> to you. wasn't I, I wasn't looking at your email. I was just clicking on an email. I was going to delete it, but but that was unfair to you. And yet it just happened. And I'm I'm in the you know, I'm, but I've been talking for an hour and a half, so maybe I'm allowed. But I I don't know. It's ridiculous, though. I I must say that I wasn't doing it while I was talking, but I I I'm embarrassed to admit, but I I, I owe you because you asked the, the, the question at the exact time I was doing it, I owe you the truth. And, and that's why I, I try not to do anything while I'm on the phone, or I try to avoid the phone, frankly. Mm-hmm. Okay? <laughs> Thank you, Esther. 
And now we go to Harper. Hello, this is Harper. Hi. And uh, Lori, thank you so much. Uh, you were speaking right to me this whole hour and a half that you've been speaking. And I'm uh, working the steps with a recovered sponsor from A Vision for You. We have a phone relationship. Um, I'm on step nine. I live in a town where there are OA meetings, but um, they're one of two kinds. One, uh, there's OA meetings that are um, just kind of the whimpering, uh, complaining OA meetings, and then there's uh, a very, very, very strict 90-day um, OA meetings that uh, require you to have their food plan and not talk until you have 90 days of abstinence and things like this. And I uh, don't go to any of these meetings, and I get that I really do need to go to face-to-face -face meetings in my town. And my question is, um, can I start an OA meeting? Can I start an OA meeting in my town? I've started two Al-Anon meetings already. Um, but yeah. can I? do I have to wait until I'm on step 12 to start an OA meeting, uh, a, a big book study or whatever, a vision for you OA meeting, a face-to-face -face OA meeting in my town. In, in my opinion, you may, you, if you have not yet reached recovery, you can't carry the message, but you can certainly be a conduit of the message that others have carried. Did you know what I mean? You can, you, you know, you, you can't, you can't, you can say, I'm working towards this, and this is how I'm doing it, and I hope that within the next X number of weeks, months, or years, or, you know, not years, I hope, uh, you know, I, I will have recovered, but this is what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm trying, I'm setting up a meeting, and no, what's wrong with that? Yeah, yeah, because I think that um, setting up a meeting, for me to set up a face-to-face -face meeting would be a very powerful tool in my recovery, um, and I don't want to wait till I'm uh, recovered. I mean, I've been more recovered I've been in OA for about six years and done it in many ways that were way too soft, and I'm doing it very, uh, very um, seriously now, and I'm more recovered than I've ever been. Uh, and I need the face-to-face. -face. I need to bring the message out before I'm, yeah, and do it when I'm in the process, in process, and be really open about that. So there's no um, there's no requirement to start an OA meeting and with, with, and ca can I call it a vision for you or is that not appropriate that that's the phone line meeting is it something I would call a big book study meeting or how would I present it I, I don't I, I mean it depends on the kind of meeting you want but I mean the, the OA.org has all kinds of resources available for people who want to start meetings. Suggested meeting formats. There's a package you can get of uh, sort of starter literature, um, uh, all kinds of things you can do, and uh, you might even ask your intergroup for assistance. They probably uh, will help you. Um, okay. So the, the, you have, you know, and what I, I've started a few meetings, and, and what I've discovered is I had all kinds of visions about what the meeting should be, and then you know I've, I've we, you know, we we uh, had some people come. I, I advertised that I went to different meetings and that we're starting up a new meeting. And then people came, and I presented a format, and 
I was quickly told by the group conscious that this format was ridiculous, and, and we, we amended the format, and it was much better than the, what I created when I, when I did it myself. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, you develop a group conscience, and, and uh, you know, some, some people in, 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 from my Sunday uh, noon meeting, uh, Sunday morning meeting have set up a Thursday evening meeting, and, um, and, uh, and they work through a, 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 a format, a group conscience, and it's, it's, it's different from our Sunday meeting, and it's very popular. So it, it's just how you do it. You have to decide what you want from that meeting and how, how you how – you, how you, what's a central theme? You know, and then you can decide how you do it. And, and, and what they said was, by the way, here's the format. We're going to work with it for a few months, and then we're going to have a group conscious meeting to decide whether what's working, what, what isn't. Which is right. a nice way of doing things. Yeah. No, you don't, there's no requirement. I mean, my goodness, if, if I were in a town where there was no OA uh, and I hadn't yet recovered, I'd set up an OA meeting and, and find someone to recover with. Now, I want to say one other thing. You have two meetings, two kinds of meetings in your hometown. Um, both of those deserve some uh, uh, respect and attention in terms of if they are carrying the message, if they are the only ones that carry the message of OA to people in your hometown, uh, you as you recover, um, uh, it seems to me, should be, should be figuring out what, if anything, you can do in relation to those meetings. I know that you know. I, I, Twenty years abstinence, uh, it's no problem for me to go to any meeting around and and uh, and say you can't kick me out, uh, you can't prevent me from me, uh, speaking. There's all kinds of uh, group conscience. Uh, you can uh, you can bring in if, if they still stop you from meeting, you can bring in a, a trustee or a, or a chair of mm-hmm. intergroup to talk about the traditions. There are all kinds of things because meetings, you know, the traditions of OA are are very clear, and the group conscience of OA is very clear on on. Preventing anyone from speaking. Same thing with uh, with uh, the meetings that are are lovely, touchy feely. There's nothing wrong with touchy feely, but there may be many people in that meeting who don't understand what OA is all about and who need some education. And, yeah. And and so you know, as as you work the steps, you'll find ways to carry the message to them, which will allow them to carry the message to others. And it it could be as well that the um, the intergroup should be more involved in that respect. Great. Thank you so much. This has been very helpful. Thank you so much for all your wisdom, strength, and, and hope and recovery. Thank you. Nicole? Hi. Hi. I'd like to ask a question. Um, Lori, that was really great. Thank you so much. Um, I was wondering about the difference between a food behavior and a food, and I don't know if um, it's okay to mention uh, foods on this. Sure. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it's okay. Okay. Um, I just wanted, for example, I completely agree with you for myself about the sugar, fat, salt combination for me. Um, and uh, part of my food plan has been to have oat bran. Now, and part of my history is taking foods that are quote-unquote healthy and converting them into things that taste like other trigger foods, which are gone and have been gone from my food plan for a while. But I was just, I mean, I'm just, as I'm listening to the plan this morning and eating breakfast, adding more cinnamon, adding more salt, adding more almond milk, adding more cinnamon, adding and to the oat bran. And is that the behavior or is it oat bran or is it cinnamon or is it salt? I'm just like really confused. Yeah. Interesting. I'll let me speak from my own experience. 
I found yeah. uh, it's a simple recipe of uh, a Greek yogurt and uh, frozen blueberries and a little bit of uh, artificial sweetener. And uh, you mm-hmm. put it in a blender and you've got uh, what tastes like ice cream. I found myself craving that and unable to stop eating it. Even though the ingredients, uh, you can argue about artificial sweetener, but certainly the blueberries and the Greek yogurt, skim milk Greek yogurt, so no fat in it, are, are quite healthy, and each one in itself is quite healthy. I found that I had to eliminate that particular uh, food, uh, that particular ingredient, uh, that particular uh, uh, substance from me because of my eating behavior that seems to relish, relish may be the wrong word, it seems to love creamy, thick, sweet, textured things. So for me, it's an eating behavior. I found that I cannot eat things that have the consistency and taste of ice cream, even, even though they have, um, um, uh, even though they're healthy in and of themselves. So for me, that's an eating behavior. It's, it's, it's what my mouth craves. It's, it's, it's the texture. It's what the tongue and the teeth and the, you know, it, it's all in the mouth at the time. And maybe as it goes down to the gullet, you know, you know what I mean? Like maybe the, the, the sweet, the sort of the, the, the creamy texture gradually releasing itself. But it, it's an eating behavior for me. I, I, don't make, I don't really try to make a huge um, a distinction. Uh, uh, whatever it is, I'm against it. <laughs> you know, whoever said that. <laughs> and and I, I, so I, I eliminate things, and, and sometimes they're food behaviors, sometimes they're a combination of foods and food behaviors. But I do analyze what, what my mouth – I have found that I'm, I have a very um, – I have a mouth that, that, that has a lot of senses. It loves to, to – the tongue likes to move around, the, the teeth love to chew, the, the lips love to – I mean, it's, just, it's a very oral fixation. I mean, maybe my mother weaned me too early. I don't know. But whatever it is, I have, a, I have really quite oral fixations, and, and I have found that uh, – that, um, I've had to eliminate a whole bunch of things simply because of my need to chew a lot and my need, my need to feel creamy things. Does that make sense? Thank you, Lori. Thank you. The line was getting a little noisy there, so we cleaned it up. Thank you. Anyone else with a question? Mr. Susan? Did I hear Nancy? Yes. Nancy and, and then Susan, please. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and thank you, Lori, for your presentation. Um, I am a recovered compulsive over here from Lewiston, Idaho, grateful to be on the meeting and really grateful to have heard your share on Step 12. And one of the questions that um, I struggle with sometimes is um, being able to perceive whether the person that I'm working through the steps with is, and I don't want to use you know, the, ter- the term I'm thinking of is getting it, and that's not the correct term because I don't determine whether they get it or not. But I have had lots of experiences with people where you can almost see the light bulb. The light comes through their eyes, and you can see, oh, my gosh, they're waking up, they're getting this thing. And I have also had the experience where I don't see anything in their eyes, and they're staying kind of, you know, they're abstinent, at least as they're reporting to me, they're abstinent from their trigger foods and eating behaviors but I'm not seeing the light go on. And I'm wondering what your experience is with that or if you have ever gotten them through all of the steps and they have not had the spiritual experience as the result of 14 steps. So um, that's. I hope you understand the question. Yeah, it's a little bit convoluted, but thank you. Yeah, there are a couple of, a couple of things that you raised, all of which are fascinating. Uh, let me take the last one first. Um, 
I use the big book, and the big book has a bunch of promises at some of the steps. If the steps, if the promises don't occur, then I say we've missed something out in the previous steps. Uh, the most significant promise is, uh, comes uh, really at, at uh, the, uh, not about two-thirds of the way through step five, um, and, and that is often the make-or-break uh, uh, set of promises. It certainly was with me. And that's um, uh, found on page, um, uh, page 75. Uh, this is just before. This is uh, af after the admitting to another human being, um, and and it's uh, right in the middle. It says we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Those are the only instructions. Uh, that's a problem. But anyway, once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. Four direct promises of this part of the step. We are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. And that is, for me, the absolute condition for whether or not they have finished, uh, they have done a good step four uh, and, and a step five. Uh, there's a little bit more of step five left where we go home and we review everything and we admit to God as well. But, but, but this, these four promises, the others are... The others in that paragraph are near promises. They're beginning to, and we may feel this. But these are the four absolute promises. And my own experience reflects that. I, when I first did it this way, um, at the end of my first step five uh, with the person I was doing it with, it felt incredible. I felt good. He said, are you delighted? Can you look the world in the eye? Can you be alone in perfect peace and ease of your fears falling from you? And I thought about it, and I said, I'll phone you tomorrow. I don't really know. I feel good, but I don't know. And the next day I phoned, I said, no. And he said, well, you, you, you left something out in step four. Go, go fill some more forms out. Uh, I said, do I have to repeat it? No, no, you don't have to repeat it. You add to it. What, what, what have you missed out? Well, I ended up, that happened to me three more times. Um, each time I discovered more, I, it may be that the fourth time I was writing my step four, one of my resentments was that I have to fill this goddamn step four form out again, you know. Uh, but whatever it was, um, by the time I finished that fourth step four, and it, they happened within a period of about a, a month and a half because, of course, they were much shorter than my original step four. Um, I met with him, and I gave away the, the step five part, and he said, are you delighted? Can you look at the world? And I said, yes, 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 yes. I felt all those feelings. Then I could do steps six, seven, and eight that same night, uh, as, as the big book suggests. So that's the first thing is, I, when I sponsor people, that's what I ask them. Are you feeling the promises? If they're not feeling the promises, they left something out. And, in, in, and the promises of step nine, the, the, the promise of neutrality. If they don't have that promise of neutrality, they left something out. Time to go back and do a step four. Maybe something has happened between the time they did their step four and five and the time that they've done step nine. Go back. Maybe someone died. Maybe some horrible thing happened to them. Maybe something's going on in the world. Go back and do a step four. Five, six, seven, eight, and nine. So for me, my answer is always, if they aren't getting it, go back and do more of the steps because the steps are the only answers that I know. Um, there are times, though, that people just don't get it, and I, I've had a, a few people whom I've sponsored who just, they don't keep abstinent, they keep relapsing, they keep having problems. And I never, I've never fired anyone, but I've certainly made it very difficult to, for me to be in contact with them because I've said, what else do you want me to do? All I'm going to repeat to you is do step, you know, develop a plan of eating that, uh, that eliminates the food, develop a plan of a strategy for working the steps, develop a plan for keeping abstinence. 
let's keep going back. Let's figure out. I mean, I should say this. Anytime, so I, I forgot to say this. Anytime someone relapses, there are two possible reasons for that. Number one is that they're still eating foods that they shouldn't be eating or indulging in eating behaviors that they shouldn't be indulging in. In other words, that their body is taking control of them, and that, that's why they're relapsing. They, can't, they haven't given up all, everything that they should be giving up. It's as if they're, they're sober, but they're still drinking a little bit of liqueur um, um, or cough medicine or something like that. And the other possibility is that they haven't worked a step. So I work with, when people relapse, I work with them on what their, you know, what their plan of eating is. I always look at that possibility, and, and my experience is it's often that, that they're still eating things they shouldn't be eating, uh, and that they know they shouldn't be eating. So I, I work with them on that, and I also work with them on, 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 on what step they, they haven't done right. So I just keep sending people back. Now, they very often fire me at that point because they don't want to do all this again. And I keep saying to them, hey, either steps work or they don't. And this is all I can do. If you want to work with some other sponsor, work with some other sponsor. Are you firing me? No, I'm not firing you. But this is all I can do. I hope that helps. Thank you, Nancy. And now we go to Susan. Yes, thank you very much. Sorry. Thank you, Nancy. And now we go to Susan for the final question for the morning. Go ahead, Susan. Thank Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much. You're so thorough, Laurie, in your in your talk that you answered all of my Step 12 questions, um, and your last response was a perfect segue to what I want to ask. Um, I'll say that I've been to your website, and I've taken a lot of notes on it. So I've already done that, and um, I've taken notes in particular on Step 4, the step that, that I've just started to work on, and I am working with a recovered sponsor. Um, since we haven't had the pleasure of hearing you speak on steps three through eleven, I you know got to hear you on one, two, and now twelve. I, I hope this is uh, appropriate to ask you a, a quick question on it, which something that came up as you were talking. Each time you speak, I've heard you speak three times now, and you'll reference your lovely wife who can eat a piece of chocolate and then stop, or your friend who uh, stopped wanting to eat was willing to stop eating the cheese because it wasn't working for him. Yeah. And the feeling that is engendered in me when I hear this is one of resentment, not toward you, but <laughs> not toward them in particular, but toward those folk that don't have this thing. Yeah. And I just wondered if there's some kind of a quick response, if you could talk about either your process around that or if that even came up as an issue for you prior to being recovered. Thanks so much. Sure. Well, sure, and I put that down as resentment in step four. I mean, a, a, a principle in step four. Remember, a, a resentment is something that you wish weren't true, uh, and it, uh, you're told to write down person principles, uh, person institutions and principles. Well, a principle that I, I guess I've put down at times, I'm sure I have, is there are people who don't have my problem. And uh, I figure out, and that's in column one, there are people who can eat. I'm, I, I know I put my wife down on my resentment list. I have probably put down on her. She can eat whatever she wants. Um, uh, I, I'm beyond that now because it's been so long, so I, I, I can't remember what I have written down, but at times I'm sure I have written that down. And, my, you know, I mean, the fact is we have a disability, and it's, it's a disability uh, different from most disabilities. Most disabilities, people accept them. They don't throw away their glasses. They don't throw away their crutches. They don't throw away their breathing apparatus. Uh, they accept their disability and live their lives as best as they can 
with that disability. Our disability is that we have a body and a mind that uh, are different from, from normal, and, uh, and we have to develop a way of living with it. Um, so acceptance is the answer to all these issues, and step four through nine give us the, uh, the way to resent it. I mean, when, when I resent these people, it is, when I look back, why do I resent them? Because they can do things I want to do. And then when I get down to where my selfish, resent, uh, selfish dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened in the, in the uh, fourth column of the resentment form, selfish, I want what I want when I can have it. Gee, isn't that the history of my life? You know, dishonest. I have a disability. I can't eat what I want when I want it. You know, uh, self, uh, uh, self-seeking. I deserve to have what I want when I want it. Uh, fear that I'll always be like this. You know, and then I work the fear through, and, and, and then I, I'm easy, it's easy to understand. I, I look at my wife now as just a person I, I'm just so happy to know because she, she reminds me of what I'm not and, and reminds me that I continually have to be vigilant where she doesn't. So what's the big deal? I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Susan, for the question. Thank you, Lori, so much for all your time, your experience, and your fascinating insight. We appreciate your visit so much. Thanks, Leah. Nice to talk Thank to you. you. Okay, take and care. I- All the best to you. I will close the meeting uh, this morning with the way A Vision for You always closes its meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164 in the big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.